I'm sitting in my garden on a beautiful Saturday afternoon and when I finish this talk I'm going to go and mow the grass. I've just had lunch so I'm in positive energy balance a very fine lunch which was quite energy dense and now now I need to burn some energy. Uh, when I mow the grass I'm going to use an electric mower which is a long way away from how I might have mowed the grass a hundred years ago. I'd have had to use much more physical force, much more physical energy to do that work. Um, it's a long way away from being, you know, in an ancestral state as a hunter-gatherer. Where do you um, expend physical energy and how do you avoid eating too much dietary energy? Well, it's a tough call. Anyway, that's what I'm going to do, but um, that's just as a very indirect introduction to the idea of energy balance which is a central concept in the physiological study of obesity um, you all know it very straightforward um, at its very simplest it's a long-term outcome of excess dietary energy eaten relative to physical and metabolic energy expended that is you eat too much and don't do enough physical activity despite knowing that um, obesity rates in most parts of the world carry on increasing so just knowing that doesn't help we know that there are genetic predispositions that influence energy balance we also know that fetal growth developmental programming that comes with with just the nutritional environment in utero and epigenetic regulation the changing the manipulation of genes genetic expression according to environmental circumstances again in utero and in early life also modify energy balance um, it's becoming ever more tricky one thing that everybody finds very simple it's turned out to be horribly complex so what are they trying to do is to look at energy balance models of obesity and and maybe dig into some of the criticisms of these models because there's been about 30 years of research using energy balance models probably more actually and um, with you know initial anticipation that it would give sort of scientific basis for uh, reducing obesity rates well no we're still stuck so We'll talk about energy balance, what it means, where it comes from, and then talk about the different kinds of models that, 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 that people use, and then get on to one or two of the criticisms of those models. So, to energy balance, what is it? The word energy, energeia in Greek, was coined by Aristotle as representing something being at work. Energy to the ancient Greeks was an observed but unmeasurable force a link between human function and pleasure. Now we don't think about pleasure in terms of energy, generally. Um, it's become something that's been dissected into uh, um, something that's tractable as a, an object of scientific inquiry. Um, and um, we've separated that from, you know, energy of the different kind when we might mean enthusiasm keenness and so on but actually the Greeks would have linked all that so when did energy become a phenomenon of scientific inquiry only in the 19th century once it was measurable and once Lord Kelvin demonstrated the interchangeability of its different forms which he then subsequently 
formalized in laws of thermodynamics. Kelvin's conceptualization of energy was significant in defining the concept of physical force in nature, but it removed bodily experience, such as pleasure and pain, from the consideration of energetics as a physiological process. Since Kelvin's time, the field of energetics has been used instrumentally in human physiological study in a range of different ways. Studying pregnancy, how much food do you need, how much dietary energy does a pregnancy cost, how expensive is lactation, breastfeeding, in, uh, as, a, as a physiological process. We now know it's actually a very expensive process. How much energy does it cost to turn a baby, for a baby to grow and become an adult? So we know about growth and development. And then the things related to that, not getting enough energy, undernutrition, getting too much energy, obesity, and looking at the relationships of all of these things in evolutionary frameworks and ecological frameworks. Well, this has happened in the last 20 or 30 years or so. I'd say we know quite a lot about energy. Um, the principle that underpins the idea of energy balance is homeostasis. The idea of homeostasis predates Socratic philosophy, uh, with the doctrine of balance of opposite qualities being its direct ancestor. Humoral theory, which was based on the equilibrium of dissimilar elements and opposite qualities, followed from Hippocrates' work and formed the basis of Western medicine until the 18th century. While humanistic Western medical practice increasingly relied on understandings of pathology and deviations from norms by which to define illness, the notion of the balance of opposites has never totally disappeared from Western medicine. Where can we find it these days? Well, the easiest is to look at the idea of blood sugar balance in type 2 diabetes management and type 1 diabetes. It's you know, you talk to any diabetic, they're having to undergo this balance of opposites manipulation every single day. It's also very clear in energy balance discussions and discourses surrounding the personal control of body weight for the prevention or management of obesity. The ideas of physiological homeostasis and energy balance, they seem to be the same thing, often taken to be synonymous. Obviously, because both are concerned with energy flow through living systems by the process of metabolism or energy transformation within biological systems. But there is a difference. While homeostasis is fundamental to physiological explanations of nutritional health, biological energy systems are not ultimately homeostatic. I've mentioned the grass that I've just mentioned to you. I'm looking at the birds flying around me. The grass is not homeostatic. If it were homeostatic, I wouldn't need to cut it. The birds are having youngsters, and these youngsters are in the nests increasingly, and there are birds flying around all over the birds, all over the place, busying themselves to find the energy to help their infants grow. So, biological energy systems, the one that I'm surrounded by at the moment, the very green and beautiful one that I'm surrounded by at the moment, is not ultimately homeostatic. <clears throat> to develop this a little bit, Douglas Wallace at the University of California at Irvine um, views um, homeostasis and 
biological energy systems in terms of competition for limited energy sources. Competition for limited energy resources is the basis of natural selection. Within any species, those that are more effective at acquiring and or expending available energy will sustain their energy flux and thus survive and reproduce. That's what the birds are doing right now. Life is largely conducted under non-equilibrium conditions and organisms, groups of organisms or species that might seem to be in energy balance across the course of a day might not be across years, centuries or millennia. Or indeed the grass. I look at it and it doesn't seem to be doing anything, but I know it is because I mowed it last week and I'm doing it again today. It would be very helpful to me if the grass decided to be in equilibrium position. There are many examples in biology of attempts to use equilibrium constructs under non-equilibrium conditions. Short-term physiological homeostasis can be demonstrated in humans under laboratory conditions, but free-living humans, you, me, like other species, show only a semblance of long-term energy homeostasis, and then only if the non-homeostatic processes of reproduction and physical growth and development are ignored. Positive energy balance is associated with pregnancy, with lactation, bodily growth, energy imbalance on the other hand, um, both positive and negative according to ecological circumstances, contributes to the selective forces that have driven human evolution. Positive energy balance to grow and reproduce, negative energy balance probably would lead to failure or death. And in evolutionary terms, if you're out of the gene pool, if you die you're out of the gene pool and, and, uh, and, and that's where it stops. While it's seemingly straightforward to think about the relationships about energy, in, about energy intake and expenditure, decades of study have increasingly shown them to be complex and intertwined. Eating and physical activity are both strongly implicated in the regulation of body weight. There are homeostatic physiological mechanisms that defend the body against changes in energy balance. Energy brought into the body by food consumption must balance energy expended by bodily maintenance, reproduction and physical activity, as well as in children physical growth and development, if either undernutrition or obesity are to be avoided. Human physiology is much better able to strike such balance in ecologies of low food availability than in ones with plenty. That is, we're adapted to be able to respond to low food intake. For a number of, there are a number of physiological ways in which we can do that. Whereas we're not very well adapted to dealing with surpluses. Where food availability is low, physiological energy deficits can lead to weight loss initially, but energy balance recalibrates at lower levels of intake and expenditure as a consequence of physiological and behavioral adaptations which defend body size and composition. Anybody who's tried to go on a weight loss diet and reduces the number of calories they eat will know exactly this process on their own bodies. It's tough to lose weight on an energy restriction diet. You can do it, but actually your body defends itself against, against weight loss. And it has to. From an evolutionary perspective, this is one of the keys to survival in the past, being able to stay alive when food resources are scarce. When food is plentiful, 
Only very weak homeostatic mechanisms exist to restore individual energy balance in the face of ecological energy surplus. In the absence of increased reproduction, increasing body size and fatness as a result. <clears throat> Obesity at the population level has emerged in societies where low or declining reproductive rates have coincided with good or improving food security in the past 60 years or so. Energy balance of obesity may therefore have a misplaced focus on the individual or nation state as the unit of study rather than the family or other reproductive unit. Fundamental issue, I think. Now let's think about different types of energy balance models. You'd think it'd be simple, but no. Um, as soon as the basic model doesn't work, then there's a modified model, then another, then another. They're not all wrong, um, but they vary in the degree of rightness that they demonstrate. So what are the various types of energy balance model that have been developed? They include things called the set point model, the energy density model, the protein leverage model, the brown fat model. All of them relate the ecological structuring of energy intake and expenditure to the individual physiological regulation of energy input and output at the whole body level. The set point model is based on epidemiological observations that show many people have more or less constant body weight across their life. This model views body weight and body fatness as being maintained homeostatically by internal endocrine regulatory factors involving either glucostatic or lipostatic mechanisms. Interestingly, this model was, was developed in from the 1970s, 1980s, at a time when the obesity epidemic, as we might want to construct it now, hadn't really accelerated. So it seemed a plausible model that, that had some kind of ecological validity. Tests of this particular model, the set point model, show the set point in humans to have upper and lower limits rather than being under tight control. For example, the fluctuation in body weight that results from either under or overfeeding requires a considerable change to the hypothetical set point, at least, at least after starvation, refeeding and overfeeding. In a review of studies of body weight regulation through energy balance, Manfred Muller and his colleagues conclude that there's strong biological control of body weight and weight stability when experimental subjects eat boring but healthy chow diets. Most studies supporting the set point hypothesis have been carried out under such conditions. My lunch was not a boring but healthy chow diet. It was a very interesting and very pleasant and very tasty non-chow diet. When humans eat more palatable energy-dense diets, like my lunch for example, the strong biological control that preserves weight stability is lost. And so the set point model of energy balance has little explanatory value in the context of high availability of palatable energy dense foods to free living people as in most high income countries now increasingly across the rest of the world and in my own kitchen just an hour ago demonstrating clear set points in different people has proved difficult and the set point model has been modified um, this is to take account of some of the inconsistencies associated with it. 
One of these modifications has involved amending the set point idea to one, to one of a range of settling points at any of several body weight states without feedback control of energy intake. Another modification has involved incorporation of the idea of a threshold control system that only responds to negative energy balance. Two further modifications of the set point model involve energy balance in relation to consumption of specific macronutrients, fat, protein, and so on. Those are the energy density and protein leverage models of obesity, respectively. The macronutrient composition of diet and its effect on satiation, that, that is, the physiological cues to terminate eating, and satiety, the feeling of fullness after eating, can vary hugely. High-fat foods have wheat effects on satiation and satiety compared to refined carbohydrates, while protein has the strongest effects on both. In addition, energy-dense, fat-rich foods have been shown to have lower satiation and satiety effects than bulky, hydrated foods that are high in protein, fiber, or water content. Bulky, hydrated foods that are high in protein, fiber, or water content, bulky, hydrated foods with a high water content and fiber content, try fruit and vegetables. In general, diets that are more energy-dense have lower effects on satiation and satiety, making it easier to overeat passively and gain weight. Across the world, the contribution of different macronutrients to total diet, daily dietary energy intake is highly variable, with population means ranging between 19 and 35% for protein, 22 and 40% for carbohydrate, and between 28 and 58% for fat. The effects of such differences in macronutrient composition of diets on satiation and satiety thus also vary considerably, and it's been argued, therefore, that the set points for energy balance must also vary considerably. Moving on to another energy balance model of obesity, the protein leverage model. This has developed the brainchild of Steve Simpson and David Raubenheimer. Steve Simpson is the director of the Charles Perkins Center for Obesity Research in uh, Sydney, in Australia, and David Raubenheimer is also there. The protein leverage model of obesity was, was postulated and published while they were both still um, in, at Oxford. What this model posits, this was only put out in 2005, is that when humans trade off their protein intake against carbohydrate and fat on nutritionally unbalanced diets, physiological regulatory mechanisms prioritize protein when regulating food intake, maintaining appetite for further consumption of food until protein needs are met. That's quite significant. It kind of means if you eat something that is very starchy and low in protein, then you just keep eating until you get enough until you get enough protein. Your target is to get enough protein in your diet. So if you're eating something high in fat and carbohydrate, chocolate. Imagine how much chocolate you need to eat before you'd reach your, your satiation according to how much protein there is in chocolate. Nominally, you could probably gorge on chocolate until your stomach was so full and you started to feel ill. But it wouldn't be protein that caused you to stop, uh, adequate protein that would cause you to stop eating. 
In relation to possible dietary causes of obesity, uh, Simpson and Raubenheimer have noted that changing patterns of fat and carbohydrate consumption may drive population obesity precisely because humans seek to contain, obtain a constant level of protein intake, even when its density in the diet is low. That is, most Western diets, if you go for the cheap stuff, a high energy density, uh, high energy density stuff, contain very little protein, so you can overeat very easily. Well, they did those, take it beyond an idea, they formalized the model mathematically, and they related changes in protein availability across nations between 1970 and the year 2000 in relation to obesity rates in the early 1990s. This is in 13 high-income countries, Australia, Canada, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Spain, Sweden, the United Kingdom, the United States. What they show is that obesity rates are highest where protein intakes have declined most, the United States, and they are lowest where they've increased the most, Denmark. The protein leverage model seems to work in this sense. Um, it's also been tested experimentally using a randomized controlled laboratory-based study to show that dietary dilution of protein with carbohydrate and fat in meals promotes the overconsumption of dietary energy more generally. Furthermore, following a free-living population longitudinally in the Philippines, um, studies have shown that intakes of calories from protein remain more or less constant over time, when, while intakes of calories from carbohydrates or fat have varied even when corrected for the low proportional contribution of protein to dietary energy. That means carb fat levels, uh, sorry, uh, protein levels staying constant as the diet changes to be less um, protein dense. People, they argue, are eating more to get the same level of protein and so over consuming the number of calories. I should add that uh, my lunch would fit that category. There was far more fat and energy than protein. Um, the protein leverage model of obesity causation is difficult to demonstrate with diets that are low in protein, however, and it's unclear whether low protein intake would cause overfeeding or whether be an outcome of overeating on carbohydrate and or fat. So there are issues of causality in this model which uh, uh, make it uh, uh, still not a, a conclusive one. Another model of energy balance in relation to obesity is something that has come back to the surface since the 1970s. This idea was proposed in the 1970s um, and that is in relation to the function of brown adipose tissue, brown fat. Brown fat has great capacity to generate heat as an, and is an important site of diet-induced thermogenesis. What is that? Dietary-induced thermogenesis. This is energy expenditure due to the digestion of food. You know, after you've had a significant meal, you start to feel nice, warm, and cozy. Well, part of that is diet-induced thermogenesis. Your gut is producing heat just in the course of digesting food. Differences in brown adipose tissue activity were initially considered to be partial explanation of why some people can eat plentifully and not put on weight, while others can't. The extent to which brown adipose tissue is involved in the regulation of energy balance has been well studied in rats, rodents in, uh, in general. Um, overfeeding 
has been shown to activate heat production through the stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system in rodent models. Processes attributed to active brown adipose tissue in experimental animals, again, mostly rodents, include non-shivering thermogenesis, which is cold-induced energy expenditure, which doesn't involve shivering. So, producing heat, but not shivering. Some people go out in the cold, they don't just go out in their t-shirt, and they don't seem to be shivering, but, you know, they seem to be surviving, quite happy. Um, quite comfortable, well, they may be actually increasing their energy expenditure through non-shivering thermogenesis. The other process attributed to active brown adipose tissue is diet-induced thermogenesis. And both diet-induced thermogenesis and non-shivering thermogenesis reduce the possibility of weight gain. And these were previously considered either absent or attributable to unknown alternative mechanisms in humans. Now, what changed um, in recent years? My, uh, um, Masayuki Saito and colleagues in Japan challenged the view when they demonstrated in Japanese subjects greater activation of brown adipose tissue in winter compared to summer and an inverse relationship between brown adipose tissue activity and ba uh, body mass index, that's so the measure of obesity, and also between brown adipose tissue activity and total and visceral fat in their subjects. More brown adipose tissue, less total fat, less visceral fat. Cold-induced activation of oxidative metabolism in brown adipose tissue, which is associated with increased energy expenditure, has since been confirmed in humans. The quantitative contribution of brown fat metabolism to human expen uh, energy expenditure is still remaining uncertain, but certainly viewed to be considerable. Um, What of energy balance models and obesity? Mostly, the energy balance models confirm to the criteria that should underpin obesity models more broadly. They all offer means of representation with clear operational definitions, common modeling language and terminology, but they vary in the extent to which they employ generality. That is, if you've got a model of energy balance of, of, of um, model of obesity, to what extent can it generalize to the phenomenon more broad broadly? If you show that brown adipose tissue activity increases energy expenditure in a rat, what does that mean for humans, all humans across the planet? For example, some of the models, energy balance models, have been used for hypothesis generation. The original set point model doesn't employ a great de high degree of generality, um, nor does the brown fat model, as I've just said. The settling point modification of the set point model has a higher degree of generality, but it does this at the cost of possible hypothesis generation. That is, it might be able to explain um, energy balance in real-world situations, but there are so many variations of this that it's impossible to pin this down to a very specific hypothesis of energy balance and obesity. Among all of these models, the protein leverage hypothesis is the best framed because it offers high generality and a good framework for hypothesis generation. However, no energy balance has been successful in demonstrating causality in obesity production. This has been a problem. It's a problem that has taxed 
uh, epidemiologist of obesity, Torquil Sorensen in Copenhagen and his colleagues. Um, and it's led them to question the implicit causality of energy balance models, often assumed by the proponents of those models. So Sorensen and colleagues argue that the translation of energy balance theory to testable scenarios about development of obesity has largely failed because energy balance theory has not translated successfully into an explanation of obesity at the population level. That is its generalization, generalizability from uh, experimental scenarios to, to larger population phenomena. The failure of translation of energy balance theory into the biological phenomenon of obesity probably also lies with the misunderstanding of the thermodynamics of non-equilibrium systems, especially in relation to reproduction and evolution. Many physiological processes are homeostatic, but their homeostasis can't be used to explain evolutionary processes, since evolution itself is not homeostatic. It's precisely what is not homeostatic in nature that drives the development of more complex structures with increased energy flow, of greater diversity both within organisms and in ecosystems, and with more hierarchical levels at all levels of biological organization. So long-term energy imbalance, if we take the evolutionary perspective, is a fundamental property of biology and ecology. If we accept this framing, obesity is an emergent property of evolved human biological systems under the very particular circumstances of assured food security and declining fertility rates in the late 20th century. As if this was not enough, there are more mundane issues of measurement that make energy balance models problematic. While the relationship between energy expenditure and energy intake can be measured accurately enough to detect energy imbalance over periods of days or weeks under tightly controlled laboratory conditions, this is much more difficult to do in free living people. This is largely because of systematic bias in everyday self-reported food intake and only moderate precision in the measurement of energy expenditure in free living conditions. The most precise measure of energy expenditure, the doubly labelled water method, has a precision of around 5%. This translates into measurement error of energy expenditure in excess of 100 kilocalories per day for most individuals. If we were to combine this with bias in energy intake measures, the combined error of assessing energy imbalance can easily be a thousand calories a day, a thousand kilocalories per day, which is around 30% of the recommended daily allowance for energy for a very inactive but average-sized adult male of body mass index 27.4. That's when I did the calculation. Um, around 24% of the recommended daily allowance for energy of an extremely active one. Um, if this English adult male that I use the data for to be able to, um, to model this had a BMI, body mass index of 21, then the combined error of assessing energy imbalance would be around 42% of recommended daily allowance if he were very inactive and 28% if he were extremely active. This level of inaccuracy prevents any evaluation of impacts of any potential any energy balanced based interventions designed to give small incremental weight loss over a period of time. So such inaccuracy, you can't actually say, look, if you reduce intake by this much, 
um, you're going to be able to incrementally lose weight over a six-month period, for example. An alternative way of observing positive energy imbalance is to measure change in weight or body fatness across a period of time. The amount of body weight or body fat gained on a daily basis is so small, however, that it can't be measured daily among free-living subjects by any available technique. But if it were possible to measure the components of energy balance exactly, it would only confirm that energy balance theory is valid, but without knowledge of what causes energy imbalance. So we're still left with that, 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 that problem. Now, obesity can't happen if there isn't enough dietary energy. So availability of dietary energy to satisfy increased dietary needs is a prerequisite for obesity development. Obesity doesn't develop during famine. And so adequate dietary energy is a necessary but not sufficient cause of obesity. Both set point and settling point energy balance models frame body weight as being in homeostasis at various levels according to energy ecology or plane of energy nutrition. In societies of abundance, a prudent lifestyle, including high cognitive control of food intake, is seen as a precondition for efficient biological control, stable body weight, and maintenance of a set point. Decades of individualized and population-based applications of health promotion models for obesity control, however, have had limited success in applying this principle. So, again, while we can demonstrate it, um, it doesn't seem to translate into everyday practice for, for weight management. Another problem with energy balance models concerns the impossibility of separating out cause and effect. Sorensen has alluded to that and um, has said, well, you know, you can't move from a, a laboratory model to the general population. Um, Obesity may take many years to emerge in any individual and behavioural and metabolic feedback mechanisms between components of energy balance become increasingly entangled across this period of time. It's impossible to say whether it's intake, expenditure or both. It's probably an interaction of the two. And the way in which um, imbalance happens because of reduced expenditure, increased intake um, are totally entangled. Physiologically, regulation of energy balance involves afferent signals from the body's periphery about the state of energy stores and efferent signals that influence energy intake through appetite, energy expenditure and physiological mechanisms such as dietary-induced thermogenesis. With increasing body fatness in any individual, there's an expansion of adipose tissue and a build-up of metabolically active, energy-demanding lean tissue. That's visceral organs, skeletal muscles and bones. And there's also a consequent increase in energy expenditure. This by itself leads to increased demand for energy intake to remain in energy balance. Physical activity becomes more difficult as body fatness increases and moves into the clinical zone of obesity, most commonly for mechanical reasons associated with carrying more body weight. Physical activity generally declines with increasing obesity, reducing the dietary energy needed to maintain neutral balance per unit of body size. 
The components of energy balance can also be influenced by physiologically can influence physiologically by changes in each other as a consequence of either positive or negative energy balance. These physiological shifts act to defend body stores, maintain energy balance and prevents and prevent shifts in body mass. If energy balance was not controlled by such a system and were responsive only to behavioral mechanisms controlling food intake and volitional energy expenditure, most people would routinely experience wide swings in body weight over short periods of time, which they don't. The observation that people eat more and move less than non-obese people and that energy balance is under physiological control can't therefore be used to make any inference about obesity causation. Employing energy balance rationale in obesity management results in only modest weight loss with exercise and dietary restriction interventions respectively, but only slightly greater weight losses when exercise is combined with dietary restriction. This is open to question the usefulness of energy balance models as the basis for weight loss interventions, because interventions that reduce body fat stores without dealing with physiological compensatory responses that promote the recovery of lost fat are more likely to fail than those that do. Long-term success of obesity interventions based on energy balance models is possible if such interventions are performed rigorously and include strong cognitive restraint against overeating. Meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials show that all types of intervention can produce weight loss in their first six months of operation of between 2 and 9% of initial body weight, more or less. This is within the range of usual seasonal weight change experienced by people living traditional subsistence economies and lies within the range of acceptable six-month weight loss for humans. Interventions involving diet only, or diet plus exercise, or pharmaceuticals plus diet, have been shown to produce weight loss that is sustainable beyond a year, but this requires strong reinforcement not to overeat. Finally, to conclude this talk, I just want to consider briefly the possibility that energy balance of obesity, when applied to obesity interventions, might actually contribute to increasing obesity in some people might be a bit provocative, but let's here goes. Most people who are able to lose weight and maintain that weight loss for two years are generally able to remain at their lower body weight across subsequent years. However, about a third of dieters fail to adapt to lower levels of energy intake. Instead, gaining weight after dieting as a consequence of a mix of reduced energy expenditure, increased consumption of calories from fat, decreased dietary restraint, and increased hunger, dietary disinhibition and binge eating. So all of those things lead to a whole new set of problems. From an evolution perspective, increasing post-dieting appetite, raised food consumption and weight gain are adaptations that defend body size and reproductive ability. Younger adults have greater reproductive potential than older ones and are several times more likely to binge eat. Defense of body weight through increased appetite and binge eating while attempting to lose weight may therefore contribute to continue increases in continuing increases in obesity for evolutionarily rational reasons. So I've probably made things more confusing than made them easier, but in a way the whole field of energy balance studies ought to be simple, 
but isn't. Um, and the, the, the various adjustments to the energy balance models themselves um, uh, leave open to scrutiny the idea that actually there may should be a meta energy balance model if it's to operate at all. Anyway, I think it's a hugely interesting and important field. Um, that said, I should probably stop and and, and go and uh, go and cut the grass. <laughs>